Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery again with another China History Podcast. Sorry for the uh, long delay since the Xiangyu episode. I had to do a uh, Ningbo run last week, and with everything that piled up on top of that, I just couldn't get it together fast enough. Another cause for the delay was simply that today's topic turned out to be much bigger than I expected. I bit off more than I could chew here. I thought I was going to be able to encapsulate into 30 to 40 minutes all seven voyages of Zheng He, both of Gavin Menzies' two books, and some interesting commentary from a Ming Dynasty scholar or two. So this one uh, might go two or three episodes, we'll see. I'm only going as far as the first voyage today. For this week's topic, we go back to the CHP 32 Ming Dynasty Part 2 episode and zero in on the seven voyages of Zheng He that took place between 1405 and 1433. Now, before we dive right in, let's put this period into some historical perspective, at least with uh, what was going on in the West. The time period we're looking at today covers part of the 28 years of Zheng He's seven voyages uh, from 1405 to 1433. This was the time of the House of Lancaster, of the Henrys 4, 5, and 6. It was also the time of Eric of Pomerania, a.k.a. Eric III of Norway, also known as Eric VII of Denmark. We're 77 years into the House of Valois in France in the time of the mad King Charles VI and the victorious King Charles VII. And when these great fleets are sailing out of the Yangtze estuary for the first time, it's only 55 years after the Black Death had devastated the European continent from 1348 to 1350. Zheng He lived after the time of Petrarch, but the Renaissance hadn't quite yet exploded in Europe. That came a little after the Seven Voyages concluded. So this is the time period, the Ming Dynasty, which ran from 1368 to 1644. The founder, I've mentioned him many times before, Zhu Yuanzhang, who, along with someone we discussed last episode, Liu Bang, were the only commoners in Chinese history, to go on to found a dynasty and rule China as an emperor. Liu Bang, of course, founded the Han in 202 BC. It went down in the history books as Han Gaozu. Zhu Yuanzhang, founder of the Ming dynasty, was the bete noir of the dying Mongol Yuan dynasty. He's known as Ming Taizu and also by his regnal name, the Hongwu Emperor. In today's episode, co-starring with Zheng He, is none other than this founding Hongwu Emperor's fourth son. Like his father and all succeeding emperors of the Ming, this son was surnamed Zhu. His name was Zhu Di. We know him as the Yongle Emperor and also as Ming Changzu. He was the fourth son of Zhu Yuanzhang. And again, I have to put a set of air quotes around the words fourth son because there are all kinds of hints and allegations about who exactly was his father. 
he most definitely took China to amazing heights, despite his various character faults. A little more about him in a moment. So, Zheng He, he was a Muslim, and like most Muslims, he had the surname Ma, which, as I said in the Warlord Ma episode, CHP 78, uh, was the uh, Ma was the first character in the Chinese word Mahamata. That's a transliteration of Muhammad. He was born Ma He. His father was an official in the employ of the Yuan. Ma He's father and grandfather had both made the Hajj to Mecca, which in the Chinese Hui community gave one a high degree of special status and, of course, allowed you to be called Haji in your community and wherever Muslims gathered and lived. This particular Ma family had come to the area we know as Yunnan in the mid to late 13th century with the retinue that followed Sayyid Ajal, the Turkish Muslim governor of Bukhara. Sayyid Ajal served the Yuan rulers with distinction as the first governor of Yunnan and is also credited with bringing Islam to this part of China. He was based in the city of Kunyang, which is present-day Jinning in Yunnan, located on the south end of Dianche, Lake Dian. And on the northern point of the lake is the capital city of Yunnan, uh, Kunming. Yunnan province, one of China's main centers of minority peoples. Back in those days, you had lots of Hui Chinese. I briefly introduced the Hui people also in that episode 78 on the Ma's, the uh, Xibei San Ma. After Zhu Yuan Zhang founded the Ming, the last holdouts from the Yuan dynasty had fled all the way to the wild southwest mountains of Yunnan province. The Ming was founded in 1368, but it was now 1381, and this place still hadn't quieted down yet. So, Zhu Yuan Zhang sends one of his most trusted generals, Fu Youde, down to Yunnan to go bang some heads and bring these last vestiges of the Yuan into the Ming fold. Fu Youde, indeed, does this. He leads an army of 300,000 men, and by 1382, brings this whole southwestern frontier area under Chinese direct control, you know, with the usual bloodbath that followed the uh, subjugation of the people. So, Ma He, he's born in 1371, which means when General uh, Fu Youde rolled into town, he was a mere lad of 10 years old. The custom of the day was that the sons of those men captured or killed were to be castrated. The Roughly 40% of young boys who survived this crude and uh, barbaric surgery then went on to serve in a number of capacities that, you know, eunuchs were famous for. So Macha was castrated in 1385. As the legend goes, Fu Yoda was somehow particularly struck by Macha's presence and his bravery, and he stood out as something special. Later on, of course, there would be Stories about Zheng He's amazing stature, his height, and all-around physical presence. He was always a magnificent sight to behold in his prime, and no doubt with his huge frame and overall size made the perfect representative of the Chinese emperor. Ma He was put in the service of the man he would serve for the next four decades. This was none other than the Prince of Yen, Zhu Di who was serving as General Fu Yoda's aide-de-camp. Ma He served the Prince of Yen with honor and distinction. 
The Yan capital was in Yanjing, which we know today as Beijing. The city was called Dadu during the time of Kublai Khan and the Mongol period. The Prince of Yan and Ma He made quite a team, and there was a real bond there. Ma He followed his prince all over China, chasing down and defeating the last pockets of Mongol resistance to the Ming. Zhu Di renamed Dadu and called it Beiping, meaning Northern Peace. Under orders from his father, Zhu Yuanzhang, also known as the Hongwu Emperor, Zhu Di sets himself up and is charged to protect the north of China from the usual suspects, from the steppes, who for a thousand years and more had made it their business to harass and cause headaches for the Chinese south of the Great Wall. Zhu Yuanzhang, to put it mildly, was famous for his hardcore paranoia and saw a potential act of treason wherever he looked. He had 26 sons and 16 daughters. His oldest son, Zhu Biao, died in 1382. So that put a major wrench in the Hongwu Emperor's succession plans. So, in his infinite wisdom, the Hongwu Emperor picks this deceased eldest son's eldest son, Zhu Yunwen, and designates this grandson as his heir. And when the Hongwu Emperor, the founder of the Ming, passes in 1398, Zhu Yunwen is placed on the throne as the Jianwen Emperor. And this sets in motion one of the truly great and historic power struggles in all of Chinese history. Now, we went through all this in the Ming Dynasty Part 2 episode, but just to refresh your memory, let's quickly rehash this historic rivalry between Zhu Di, the later Yongle Emperor, and his nephew, Zhu Yunwen, who is now reigning in Nanjing as the Jianwen Emperor. You see, Zhu Di felt his claim to the throne was a heck of a lot more legitimate than his nephew. It was common knowledge that when the Hongwu Emperor died, he wasn't quite at the top of his game mentally, so making the choice he did was certainly open to scrutiny. At least the future Yongle Emperor thought so. So although at the outset in the summer of 1398 he had no choice except to go along with this, Zhu Di wasn't happy, and he began plotting at once. The Jianwen Emperor, a 21-year-old whippersnapper, was extremely wary of his 38-year-old uncle, Zhu Di, the Prince of Yen. And for very good reason, too. Prince of Yen was up to no good and was determined to take by force what should have been handed to him in the first place. But he had to move slow and carefully. These two squared off against each other from a distance. Zhu Di is up in the north in Beiping, which he will rename Beijing much later on. And the Jianwen Emperor was based down in the Ming capital in Nanjing. As I said, Zhu Yuanzhang had a surplus of sons, and the Jianwen Emperor had to be careful of more than just Zhu Di up in Beiping. He took all kinds of measures to clip the wings of any and all potential rivals and rein them in to keep them close and diminish their power. This is a familiar historical theme played out with a lot of uh, absolute monarchies. This worked with all the sons of Zhu Yuanzhang except one. Zhu Di wasn't going to go quietly into the night, so he bided his time until June, July of 1402, when the moment was right to strike, and with the secret assistance of the eunuch faction at the imperial court in Nanjing, who exposed where all the 
Jianwen Emperor's soft spots were, Zhu Di, the Prince of Yen, captures Nanjing and the palace is burned to the ground uh, with the Jianwen Emperor inside, uh, along with his Empress. Well, it was sort of a death of Hitler kind of a thing. You know, there's some evidence he went down in the flames, but no one ever recovered any body, nor was any rock-solid, irrefutable evidence produced that, beyond the shadow of a doubt, proved the Jianwen Emperor was dead. So, what does all this have to do with Zheng He, right? Well, it had to do a lot with our story, because fighting side-by-side side with Zhu Di, the Prince of Yen, loyally, bravely, and with distinction, is none other than our Ma He. And in return for this fearlessness, bravery, and judgment, Maha is going to be rewarded later on once Judi is able to take the throne. For his loyalty, his service, and for fighting side by side with Judi in the taking of Nanjing, the Prince of Yen gives Maha a new surname, Zheng. So in 1402, he becomes Zheng He, the name by which we know him today. There's also a link to Zheng He in the way the whole rebellion against the Jianwen emperor ended. Because no one could produce a body, that left the door open to the possibility he might have made a chance escape. And rumors were rampant that the Jianwen emperor had you know, disguised himself as a Buddhist monk and had snuck out the back door and was now safely on his way to find a place to regroup and ultimately reclaim the throne and overthrow this usurper who was now calling himself the Yongle emperor. Something had to be done about this, and if it took seven voyages to track this guy down and get rid of him once and for all, the Yongle Emperor was determined to do it. So, part of Zheng He's job was to keep a sharp lookout for the Jianwen Emperor traveling incognito around the ports of Southeast Asia and perhaps beyond. Zheng He was to make inquiries wherever he went and you know, follow up on every possible lead. Needless to say, they never found the Jianwen Emperor, but that didn't mean the Yongle Emperor didn't keep telling Zheng He each time to keep his eyes open. There's a lot out there in the history books that says that this obsession to track this guy down is what drove the Emperor to call for these voyages. You see, he didn't want to end up going down in the annals of the Ming Dynasty as a usurper. He didn't want to be mentioned in the same breath with the likes of Wang Mang and others who got to sit on the throne that wasn't rightfully theirs. So in order to counteract this sentiment, the Yongle Emperor decided to go all out and spare no expense to throw the entirety of the imperial treasury and the power of his name to hold this massive coming out party in the form of this first voyage in 1405. And wherever this magical flotilla would show up, it would speak for itself about the wonders and glories of China. And from the cargo holds of these treasure ships, Zheng He, on behalf of the Yongle Emperor, would bestow the most extravagant and lavish gifts on these rulers who had acknowledged the Emperor's greatness and paid tribute to him and agreed with Zheng He to go back to Nanjing to kowtow before the Emperor Yongle. And so in 1403, Yongle makes the official call to build this fleet, go out into the known world, and spread China's glory. And with the Yongle Emperor, when he says China's glory, he really means his own glory. The Yongle Emperor, face was everything to this guy. He was really looking to put an end to any 
further talk about whether or not he deserved to be emperor. So the call goes out to ramp up for this big project. Ostensibly, the fleet was supposed to go out, wow the world, stimulate trade between China and the lands to the west, and seek out new lands and rulers who would accept China as their big, big brother to the extent that they'd come to Nanjing, prostrate themselves before the emperor, kotow, and become, you know, these vassal states of China. But the other hidden agenda of Yongle was to find this dang Jianwen emperor. This was not going to be just some ordinary fleet that the emperor had in mind. He had big plans. If he was going to outshine his father, the Hongwu emperor, he had to think big. On top of attempting to build something that would blow the minds of all those who beheld it, this fleet of ships was also meant to act as a sort of, uh, I guess, mini Canton Fair, so to speak, that showed all the latest wonders of China's artisans and manufacturers. The emperor knew there was nothing like some healthy international trade to help jolt the economy back to life and bring some wealth flowing back into China's direction. And so, right on the banks of the Yangtze, right near where the Nanjing Hilton stands today, where the Qinhuai River flows into China's longest river, the Yangtze, they built these shipyards. They called it the Longjiang Shipyards, and there was nothing like it in all the world. The centerpiece was a 1,500-foot-long dry dock that ran perpendicular to the Great River. Amazing feats of engineering and damming water enabled a series of locks to float the gargantuan ships from the dry dock to the Yangtze, where it could float downstream to the mouth of the Yangtze that ran along the northern part of Shanghai. China had perfected this whole way of building ships going back to the Song Dynasty. And by now, in the Ming, they were, they were ready for anything. And so the Yongle Emperor began his little Manhattan Project right there. The whole country got pulled into the effort. Besides everything that went into building the ships, it was a whole other mission impossible to do all that was necessary to cultivate and harvest all the trees and raw materials that were needed to build such a fleet. And on top of all this, those treasure ships could hold a lot of stuff. The Yongle Emperor wasn't giving away, you know, sandalwood fans and Baoshan balls. No expense was spared to stock the holds with the finest silks, Qingbai porcelain and stuff that would, you know, make the beholders amazed and blown right out of their garments at the skill, the craftsmanship, and the value of these amazing treasures. From this ritual of presenting gifts, the Yongle Emperor got tons of face. That meant face for China. Everybody wins. You know, today, a lot of these treasures that got passed around the ancient trading cities of Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, India, Iran, Kenya, a lot of this stuff, or at least lots of pieces of it, are still there in private hands, some in museums. Zhenghe spread a lot of this stuff around, and although most didn't survive, plenty did. Now, someone had to make this stuff. It didn't just come out of thin air. So you can imagine the economic boom this caused with, you know, a lot of people in on the supply chain, making this all happen and getting it to the ships. Between the start of the voyages and the time of the last voyage, the kilns at Jingde Jun in Jiangxi were increased from 20 to 58 thanks to the spike in business over a sustained period. 
brokers and middlemen along the supply chain between the source and the Yongle emperor, you know, made fortunes skimming from the cream. It was during these voyages that a certain cobalt powder was sourced from Persian merchants in Hormuz, I believe, that was taken back to China and used at Jingde Zhen to produce that particular blue color glaze that was used to produce that exquisite blue and white porcelain, which was one of the calling cards of the Ming Dynasty. That Ming Dynasty blue was facilitated in part by Zheng He's efforts. Later on, when we get into the voyages themselves, you could appreciate how ambitious they were. Anyone who beheld these treasure ships between Nanjing and Mombasa couldn't fail to be impressed. Wherever Zheng He sailed these treasure fleets, there, there's plenty of written accounts of their you know, visits to these you know, various ports. I mean, they were a sensation wherever they went. From 1404 to 1407, there was a major frenzy of shipbuilding that went on. 1,681 vessels were either being built or retrofitted. 20 to 30,000 people showed up to work each day at the Longjiang shipyards to work on this effort. Zheng He had served the Yongle emperor since he was a preteen. He had repeatedly proved his usefulness to the emperor going back to the days when he was prince of Yan. Zheng He was educated despite the prohibition against teaching eunuchs to read. And when all that nasty business was going down with Zhu Di's nephew, who, by a simple twist of fate, got chosen as the Hongwu emperor's ear, Zheng He stood by Zhu Di's side without fail. And when it was all-out war between the forces of the Prince of Yen and those of the Jianwen emperor, Zheng He was there to serve Zhu Di even in battle. And when... On July 17, 1402, Zhu Di became the Yongle Emperor. He knew his cause had prevailed, partly due to the unfailing support of Zheng He and several others, of course. So when it came time for the Emperor to select who was going to represent him as his personal envoy in front of the royals and headmen at all these faraway ports of call, it only came natural that he chose Zheng He not only was he trustworthy and wise, but he was one big dude and cut a very imposing presence. So Admiral Zheng He not only sailed the seas as the Yongle Emperor's envoy, he was also commander-in-chief of the fleet. So much did the Yongle Emperor trust his man Zheng He that when he sailed off at the outset of the first voyage, Zheng He held in his possession empty documents affixed with the emperor's seal, which amounted to blank signed checks from Yongle to allow Zheng He to issue any and all necessary imperial decrees in the emperor's name while at sea. These boats were indeed quite big. The legends had it, and, well, reliable evidence existed, that claimed the size of these Baochuan, the treasure boats, the biggest ones they had, were about 440 feet long. Yeah, can you imagine that? In Chinese measurements taken from you know, reliable sources of the time, the treasure boats were said to be 44 zhang and 4 chi long and 18 zhang wide. A zhang is 10 chi and 1 chi is between 12, 13 inches. So if you do the math, 
44 zhang and 4 chi adds up to 44 times 10 chi plus 4 chi equal 444 chi times, you know, say 12 inches equal 5,328 inches equals what? 444 feet long and 18 zhang wide, 180 feet wide. Other accounts put it at around, you know, 440 feet long and 165 feet wide. By any accounts, it's some 400 plus feet. That's over 130 yards. So if you can visualize two massive MI-12 helicopters lifting this treasure ship up and flying it to London, it could hover right over Wembley Arena and lower that treasure ship right down smack dab into the center of the pitch. And each end of that vessel would be in the opposite ends of the east and west stands. The Wembley pitch from end to end. And in the 1960s, there was archaeological evidence uncovered near Nanjing that proved these treasure ships really were as big as they said they were. No exaggeration. And there were more than just the treasure ships. There were, you know, horse transport ships, 339 feet long, 138 feet wide. There were supply and support ships galore. Troop transport, water ships, food ships. This was an incredible logistics and communications endeavor. You know, and walkie-talkies are still 535 years away. By the spring of 1405, there were 317 ships ready to go docked in Nanjing. Despite the upheaval, China was still doing okay, and the way things were looking at the dawn of the 15th century, China was looking like they were in for a real nice run. Commerce was booming like never before. The surge in commercial activity began, and the Song Dynasty was now way more developed, and by now you had a very active and healthy middle class emerging in China. Commerce now operated on a much grander scale, not only in China, but all around Southeast Asia, and in those ancient Silk Road routes that were still being used during the Ming. You know, before I get into it, it's not like Zheng He took this amazing voyage of discovery into the unknown. I don't want to diminish his achievements in any way. But the voyages of Zheng He were historic and significant for many reasons. One thing that people tend to forget is most all of these places he went to, everybody knew about them already. They were long-standing trading ports that everyone already knew about and went to. The trade in spices, woods, gems, and all kinds of exotica was already very established and booming. Great trading centers grew up around these markets, and this is how the cities of Surabaya, Palembang, Semedura, Banda Aceh, and Indonesia grew and prospered. In Malaysia, you had Malacca, a fabled city with a rich and ancient history all its own. Gale in Sri Lanka, and perhaps the greatest of its day, Kalakat on the Malabar coast of India in Kerala state, and perhaps Equally as great was Hormuz in Iran, which was then called Persia. There was also Dofar in Oman, Aden in Yemen, Mogadishu in Somalia, and Malindi in Kenya, where the Swahili coast was thriving with commerce. I'm not sure about Africa, but pretty much everywhere a trading center existed between Fujian and Hormuz. Chinese were already there and right in the middle of everything. So this wasn't so much a voyage of discovery 
as it was a chance for China to go out into the region, which as far as they knew was the whole world, and, you know, say, you know, yo, yo, look at me, am I not great or what? You know, at this point in history, early 15th century, Europe hadn't fully crawled out of the Dark Ages. Petrarch had already come and gone, but that spark hadn't yet ignited what would follow with the Renaissance and the whole age of discovery and exploration. There were still a few hundred years to go, you know, of priming the pump for, you know, when the Industrial Revolution would kick in. But right now, China was king. All any sane and educated man had to do was look at the size of these ships, their numbers, I mean, the whole package. I mean, no one in the West had this kind of technology, engineering know-how, science, and most of all, the money to run this kind of maritime operation. And now the Emperor Yongle was going to let everyone copagander at his greatness. The payoff was going to be ambassadors. That's what this was about in many ways. Acquire and accumulate as many ambassadors as possible from all the lands, great and small. Pick them up when the fleet stopped at their port, take them back to China, and on the appointed day, each king or representative of the king or chief would prostrate himself before the emperor and kotow in the prescribed way and present the gifts that he brought with him from his land. Of course, you know, this guy had to get some face too, so he isn't bringing trinkets. He would present the very best that he could offer. And this is how it went, voyage after voyage. These ambassadors would come, and then on the next voyage, they would be taken back, and then a whole new group would be picked up and, you know, taken back to China, and the whole cycle would repeat itself. And the Yongle Emperor, hey, how could anyone not think he wasn't great? Ming China was rock solid. All these ambassadors were lining up to kowtow to him. Who could say he usurped the throne? I mean, if this didn't shine a spotlight on the Yongle Emperor's legitimacy, you know, as bright as the one atop the Luxor Hotel in the Vegas Strip, nothing did. If one of the Yongle Emperor's goals was to outshine his father, he surely was succeeding. So, with a whole lot of fanfare, and what a sight it must have been to behold, the fleet sails out, 317 vessels strong, about 27,000 men. Destination, the City of Spices, Calicut on the Malabar coast, on the west side of India that faces the Arabian Sea. Trade had languished ever since the Hongwu Emperor, under pressure and influence from the anti-trade Confucianists at court, put the kibosh on all maritime trading. The Yongle Emperor was now going to let everyone know China was back and trade was welcome. If the word got out in a place like Calicut, then you were guaranteed that every corner of the known world would find out about it too. And that's how much of a center Calicut was to the regional spice trade. The evening before the fleet sailed, there was a feast, and sacrifices were made to Tianfei, who was probably more well-known as Mazu, the protector of sailors and the goddess of the sea. The goddess meant everything to Zhenghe and Although he was a devout Muslim till his dying day, he also was a practical man and honored Matsu with all the appropriate customs and rituals and gave thanks to her plenty. And as we'll see in a bit, he'll build a monument one day in Nanjing to her honor. This period between 1371 and 1405, when China had a trade ban, the so-called Hai Qin, 
though only 35 years, really put a crimp in the whole maritime trading business. And without someone with China's swagger to sort of, you know, police the seas, pirates had a heyday. 1370s, 1380s, and up until the time of this first voyage in 1405, pirates had enjoyed rich pickings. So now China is going to get back into the game, and we'll see. Zheng He has some run-ins with these pirates, but that gets addressed, and then the seas are safe once again. Let me just say that for all seven voyages, pretty much the fleet visited all the same places over and over. Now, this isn't the case always, but pretty much they sail out of the mouth of the Yangtze. And the first stop would always be in Fujian, either, you know, Quanzhou or Changle. The three great trading ports of Fujian were Quanzhou, Changle, and Xiamen. That was usually a service port of call with more provisions taken on board, and, you know, whatever last-minute repairs were needed. You know, they were taken care of. The next stop was always Champa. Champa was a kingdom in the south and central part of Vietnam that had been around since about the Tang Dynasty. Annam was in the north of Vietnam. Then they had a long stretch south to the island of Java and the port of Surabaya. Then the journey west would begin in earnest, and they would sail through the Straits of Malacca that separated Sumatra from the Thai Malay Peninsula. Sumatra had two great trading centers. These were the ancient Indonesian cities of Palembang in the south and Samudera in the north. Once you left Palembang in southern Sumatra and started heading towards the Malacca Strait, you'd hit Malacca on the Malay side. And then a little further north was the great trading center of Samudera and a little further north at the top of Sumatra, of course, Banda Aceh. Malacca is an important place. China sure thought so. And this settlement was where they set up a kind of regional base. The Yongle emperor, to cement good relations with the people there, gave one of his great-granddaughters named Han Lipao to the sultan there in marriage. I don't know if this was um, the second, third, or fourth voyage, but she came with quite an entourage of handmaidens and sons of ministers, you know, who worked for the emperor. And today... In Malacca, you have Bukachina Hill, where the Sultan Mansur Shah set up a home for his son and this, you know, royal great-granddaughter of Yongle. Bukachina Hill and the seven wells that were dug in Zheng He's time are all part of the story. Only three of the seven wells exist today. The most famous is the Han Lipao Well, named after this great-granddaughter, you know, Han Lipao, who became a princess. And this is located next to the Sampo Tang Temple, which was built many years later in the 18th century. Malacca was of great strategic importance to Ming China, and Zheng He used this place as his regional base of operations during the entirety of his seven voyages. Bukit China, or China Hill, is one of the oldest Chinese settlements in Southeast Asia. There's plenty of artifacts and relics that testify to the period of Zheng He's seven voyages. Today, these Chinese descendants of this time are called the Baba Anyonya, or the Straits Chinese, and their whole rich history and the multitude of contributions they made to the rich culture and history there will be studied in a future China history podcast. 
From this point, it was a straight shot across the Indian Ocean to the southern tip of the island of Ceylon, you know, present-day Sri Lanka, to the city of Gale, the world capital of the cinnamon business at the time. This was also the place for gemstones and pearls. Their stop in Ceylon during the first voyage met with, you know, less than a cool reception, and in so many words, they were told to, you know, keep moving, nothing to see here. And then from there, it was up to the Malabar coast, to Quilon, Cochin, and ultimately to Calicut. And for the first three voyages, this is pretty much how it went. They concluded in Calicut, and then the ships turned around and went back to Ming, China. We'll look at all voyages in more detail next time. The later voyages took them further. Voyage 4 went all the way to Persia, to Hormuz, and then voyages 5, 6, and 7 were the ones that went all the way beyond the Horn of Africa to what is present-day Somalia and Kenya. With a cargo full of spices and treasures, ambassadors, and a ton of new information that would serve them well for future voyages, Zheng He's fleets sailed back to Nanjing. Now, en route back to China, Zheng He had some unfinished business he had to take care of with this nasty pirate known as Chen Yi. He was the most famous and notorious pirate of his day. He based himself in Palembang in Sumatra. Chan Tzu Yi was a native of Guangdong province who had gone on to a life of piracy and had you know, been the terror of the Moluccan traders all the way up until Zheng He's fleet faced off against him in 1407. In the battle that followed, Chan Tzu Yi's whole force of 5,000 fellow pirates were soundly defeated, and Chen was taken back to Nanjing in chains and later executed. So although Zheng He, for the most part, always came in peace, there were from time to time some skirmishes where, you know, everyone had to get into battle mode, and his fleet had some terrifying weapons at their disposal. It had been a good four to four and a half centuries that gunpowder had, you know, been around. By Zheng He's time, they had figured out some really terrifying and barbaric uses of gunpowder as a you know, relative weapon of mass destruction. And with China being the big regional brother for many of these local kings and chieftains, it was only natural that Zheng He got sucked into local politics from time to time, you know, deciding in favor of one ruler you know, over another. One thing I wanted to mention about this uh, first voyage They didn't know it at the time, of course, but this first voyage very well could have been preempted by a certain event taking place far away in the north and west of China. A certain Timur, known as Timur the Lame, who we in the west know as Tamerlane, he was fixing to invade Ming Dynasty China. He had the wherewithal to do it, too. He had the army and the leadership skills, and he sure had the reputation He was right up there with the greatest of mass murderers in world history. Millions and millions of people had been killed in his various romps around Central Asia. And he became one of the most powerful leaders to ever rule in the Muslim world. The founder of the Indian Mughal Empire was a a descendant of Tamerlane. He marched on China, intent to take it over, just like the forces of Genghis and Kublai Khan had once done. But... As luck would have it, he died in 1405, just before the first voyage sailed out of the Yangtze estuary, and the Ming dynasty was unwittingly spared a possible early death. 
who knows what might have happened had Tamerlane lived to go on and conquer China in the early 15th century. So let's put the bookmark in right here, and we'll come back next time to maybe finish it up. We'll keep going with more of Zheng He and the Seven Voyages next time. And Gavin Menzies' two books, 1421 and 1434. We'll look at those two while we're at it. Again, my sincerest apologies to everyone who had to wait for this episode. That Xiangyu episode feels like it was about a year ago. Once I finished that one, there was a good 18 days before this one got uploaded. Almost a record here at the China History Podcast. I thought I was going to be able to handle this from the road like I usually do. And when I took this recent Ningbo Hong Kong trip, between the miserable jet lag at the beginning and the end of the trip and the endless meetings in Ningbo and all the responsibilities, I just could not get it together. This trip really knocked me out. And when I came back last week, it was just a ton of work just rained down on me. So again, sorry to lose the rhythm. Hopefully we can get back into a more regular weekly routine. And besides all this, the subject of Jungha turned out to be a lot bigger than I thought it was. Melvin Bragg's BBC In Our Time podcast features the Ming voyages in their October 13th, 2011 episode. You can go check that one out if you would rather hear three China experts talk about this subject rather than some amateur like your humble narrator here. So that's it for now. Laszlo Montgomery signing off from gorgeous, sunny Claremont here in the Golden State. Uh, I hope this piqued your interest enough where you'll consider joining us next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.